Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum Pod is produced in the gorgeous surrounds of Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can check out our amazing range of short courses or degrees at crawford.anu.edu.au. Pretty sure there will be something that you might be interested in. And today I'm joined by my co-host, Quentin Grafton. Hi, Quentin. Hi, Ulia. Nice to be here. Good to have you, Quentin. Quentin is a professor here at Crawford School and also the UNESCO Chair for Water Economics and Transboundary Water Governance. Quentin, last week you were on the ABC's Four Corners program, Cash Splash, and you talked about the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which you described as a national scandal. The plan was originally launched in 2012 to make water usage across the basin more sustainable. What kind of reaction have you seen since the program? Mixed reaction, actually, Julia. So we've had people who have been very unhappy with that program and they've made some complaints or at least questions, I believe, to the ABC, which the ABC is responding to. And I've also received phone calls from farmers. So I received two phone calls from farmers who uh, congratulated me for speaking out and pointed out the problems that they've been facing in the context of water access and, in fact, how water had been uh, taken from them uh, in the past in the context of the changes in licenses for people upstream, which has affected them. So it's been a mixed bag, really. But in terms of getting the word out there, I think the ABC Four Corners program did a good job. It actually explained that there's a whole set of issues and problems associated with these subsidies, $4 billion already spent, yet we don't have a water audit to actually know what's actually happened in terms of return flows. We don't even know what the amount of water is in private storages. These basic pieces of information are still not available to us, yet we spent a great deal of taxpayers' money. That's what the program was about, more or less, and uh, happy to, to be part of it. Yes, Quentin. And also in the interview, you mentioned and criticized the lack of accurate data on water usage in the river system. But why is it that we actually don't have that data available to us? Well, we haven't spent the time and the money to actually get that data. And why we haven't done that? Well, that's a question for the government, because uh, that's uh, the basic data that we need to be able to conduct water management and water governments. The claim has been made consistently by various people, including in the government, and some uh, some of the irrigator councils that this is world's best practice. Well, it clearly isn't world's best practice. And if they think it's world's best practice, well, let's have a water audit so we actually can find out whether it indeed is or it is not uh, world's best practice. So if you spend $4,000 million, you'd think you'd be able to spend somewhere between 10 and $20 million doing a proper water audit. That is something that we haven't done yet in Australia. I hope we will one day because that's the sort of money and expenditure we need to verify what's going on and to make sure that if we are making mistakes, then we can correct those mistakes for the benefit of all Australians. 
Yeah, Quentin, that sounds pretty reasonable. And you also mentioned that whenever you tried or other researchers tried to confront the government with data that proved that there were issues with the basin, you received quite a decisive pushback. Do you think this attitude is going to change anytime soon with more and more information now surfacing, or particularly after the ABC Four Corners program? Well, I, th I think there's a, there's an approach to basically shut down people who speak the truth, and that's what I believe I've been doing is speaking the truth. And so uh, Corrigan, who's the CEO, I believe, of Webster, Inc., he made the point that we were a gaggle of uh, discontents. So that's a, a typical approach. You basically, you attack the messenger rather than the message. And that's been a consistent approach, I think. But if you really are serious about helping Australia and Australians and indeed the Murray-Darling Basin and, and achieving a range of outcomes for farming and also for the environment and for communities, then you should listen. You should pay attention, especially when this work is published in, in uh, peer-reviewed academic journals. We had a paper published in Science, one of the premier journals in the world, in August of 2018, which I provided to the various uh, departmental officials. had a paper published earlier this year in one of the top journals in, in Australia in terms of water resources, again, pointing out the issues that we were raising, again, no response. So, so that's, that's sad that uh, when information and, and, inf uh, and uh, as I said, peer-reviewed academic work is just dismissed and the people providing that information are just viewed as, uh, as discontents uh, or get in this case a gaggle, a gaggle of discontents. That surely is a very frustrating position to be in and also thinking about and in relation to that, what can even be done without the government's cooperation in, on this issue? Well, it has to be governments, obviously the Australian government in terms of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Department of Agriculture, but also state governments and uh, state governments have their own agendas. So we actually have to have a, a, a federal approach here in terms of what's going on, because it's the state governments that make the determinations and have the control over the water entitlements in their respective jurisdictions, but it's the federal government that makes the determination in terms of how much there will be in terms of sustainable diversion limits. So we need cooperative uh, government here, but we to get cooperation, we also need, uh, and, and good outcomes, we also need uh, listening. And, and I think that's a problem we have, not just in water, is the issue to listen. So listen actually means you actually hear what someone is telling you. You try and work out what is wrong or what's right, and then you respond to it in a meaningful way rather than simply ignoring the message or focusing uh, in some way or other on the messenger. That's right. And assuming that we have some people from the government listening to us right now, what would be the answer to the problem set out by you and others on the program to these issues? Okay, well, this is not about a blame game. So I'm not trying to focus on any individual or individual group. So all I'm simply saying is let's have a water audit. So that's water audit. <laughs> so that's a hydrological audit where you actually work out what's going on with the water, where it is, what, what happens to that water, when it gets returned back to the system, what is happening in terms of storages, public and private. That's that's just the basic piece of information that's required here. So why don't we do a water audit? It's not about blaming anyone. It's just simply knowing where the water is. I've uh, attended uh, AGMs of uh, the South Australian Murray Irrigation uh, back in last year in September of 2018. 
And certainly irrigators there uh, um, thought uh, when I mentioned this issue of water, what was certainly in my view were generally supportive of it. So, so it's not like it's uh, it's just an academic perspective here. I think a lot of irrigators, certainly downstream irrigators, are supportive of a water audit because they also want to know what's happening to the water. It's very important to them as well, as well as of course to the environment. So let's let's just do it. Let's just not muck around. Let's actually do a proper water audit, have it independently verified, and actually let's get some uh, information and transparency and light to this matter, and then we can move forward rather than just going back and forth and back and forth. He said, she said, when we don't actually have the full set of information in front of us. So backing claims with facts, that's the key. Well, that's exactly what we <laughs> want to do here at Policy Forum uh, and indeed at this school, the Crawford School of Public Policy, is you know you have evidence and you use that evidence to try and make better policy. But if you hide evidence or don't even make that evidence available, it's pretty hard to make good policy, especially when that policy is worth, uh, in terms of expenditures, multiples of billions. You, you think it would be a basic, a basic tenant of spending billions of dollars that you would actually do the necessary homework to make sure that that money is actually being well spent and verifying that it's leading to the outcomes that you would want. Absolutely. So what do you think of that, listeners? Please do get in contact with us. The best way to do that is to, of course, join our Facebook group. We are Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. Just type that in into the search bar and join us. But you can also reach us on Twitter where we are at Apps Policy Forum, or you can also do it the old-fashioned way and send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. Today's discussion is brought to you in cooperation with the ANU Australian Crawford Leadership Forum. This year's forum, held on 24 and 25th June, was built around the theme Rebuilding Trust in Our Public Institutions and Policymaking. So today we want to take a closer look at sustainable development. Back in 2015, the United Nations put together the Sustainable Development Goals to guide global development until 2030. You have probably heard of them before, eliminating poverty, hunger, promoting health and well-being, as well as encouraging equality, education and gender equality are only a few examples from the extensive list of targets set. In May this year, however, the UN published a progress report revealing that the Asia-Pacific was not on track to reach a single one of these goals by 2030. In fact, for more than half of them, the region is either making no progress or heading in the wrong direction. It's clear that the current plan of action isn't enough. With goal number seven, emphasizing the need for global cross-sector partnership, we've invited John Denton to our podcast cupboard to better understand how the private and public sectors should be working together to get back on track. Well, let's introduce uh, John Denton. So he's an Australian and he is the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce. Now, John May and others refer to it as the ICC. Uh, you might think of the ICC as the International <laughs> Cricket Council, but in this podcast, it's very much the International Chamber of Commerce, a well-known organization in, in the area of uh, promoting business for, for the betterment of humankind. And uh, he is a member of the board of the UN Global Compact and the IFM Global Investors, amongst holding other significant positions in various global institutions. Yeah, we're really excited to have John. And also for this discussion, we'll be handing over to our first time pod host and Policy Forum Associate Editor, Lydia Kim. Lydia has really done a fantastic job at this. So we're looking forward to the discussion. But also listeners, don't forget to stick around after the main discussion because we'll be going over some of your questions, comments and suggestions for future pods. But for now, let's hear from John Denton. 
Hi, John. Lovely to have you here today. Lydia, great to be back in ANU at the Crawford <laughs> School. Always a pleasure to be here. Um, so we'll just get straight into it, if that's okay with you. Let's go. Today we're going to be talking about future-proofing the global economy, but I'm wondering what that actually means. So what are we trying to prepare the economy for? Well, there's a major transition going on in the economy. I mean, you can look at it from a geopolitical position, or you can look at it from a... Um, an economic and the formation of uh, the global economy. You can even look at it from a demographic position. Uh, and in each of those, what we're looking at is really a transition. And one of the challenges is whether we have the institutional rulemaking, we have the institutions, uh, we have the public policy settings, we have the political appetite right. At the moment, uh, I would say the global economy is facing significant headwinds uh, and they're really around um, the level of volatility coming out of geopolitical and partly uh, the sort of geoeconomic um, framing and trying to accommodate, I think, some of the demographic and shifts in the way in which uh, the global economy op also operates. I mean, what I mean by the latter is really around this transition into um, a low carbon, a transition into a transition to the digital economy. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, and a lot of that wasn't envisaged, of course, when a lot of the rulemaking institutions were established. Uh, the classic is even in multilateral trade where WTO was formed in 1995. It was only in 1995 that the internet actually entered the public domain. And so subsequent to that, this extraordinary growth in internet-based um, economic activity was never really encapsulated or thought through in the rulemaking uh, processes of the WTO. And so there's tension there. And similarly, I talked about that demographic issue. Part of that is um, if you think about the opening up of the former Soviet Union and the entry of um, China and uh, India, uh, principally into the global economy, these are billions of consumers, billions of citizens entered the global economy. And uh, it's caused some shifts there. And also then you just look at the locus of economic power, the way it shifted from the presumption around the Northern Hemisphere really to the Southern Hemisphere and a lot of the drivers of economic growth at the moment are still coming out of Asia Pac. So the system was sort of set up with another kind of global model in mind. Some would say it was always designed to be flexible, but I think we're seeing some of the tensions around that. And for me, that sort of plays out in some of the geopolitics and that's giving rise to some of the volatility. So it's all sort of playing out uh, in a complex mess. But in a, in a way, uh, uh, I often say in my organization, um, this is the time where if you're a purpose-led organization, which is very clear around its role in the global um, global world, that you should, we should be coming up with ideas, solutions, approaches, etc. So flipping it, it's an exciting time, uh, though I can see why people are nervous. Surely it is. And part of that nervousness, I think, comes from a slowing global economy, potentially. So we're supposed to see the global economy slow down over the coming years as a result of decreased demand from China, a slowing European economy, and a global slowdown in trade, as you mentioned, trade before, and manufacturing growth. So will all of this affect our progress in achieving the UN SDGs by any chance? Oh, wow. What a great question. So I'm um, the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce, um, and just putting this in context. So we are the institutional voice of 45 million businesses globally in the north and the south, and actually in the developed and developing world. So it's important to bear that in mind, actually, when I respond to your question. Um, we at the ICC believe that uh, our role is to enable business worldwide to secure peace, prosperity, and opportunity for all. So when you 
think about the um, context of the setting up of the SDGs to follow the Millennium Development Goals, we were intimately involved in the creation of the Sustainable Development Goals because we think the SDGs, when fully implemented, are good uh, for business uh, and enable peace, prosperity and opportunity for all. So we're, we're not observers in this. We're active protagonists in this. Um, the 2030 agenda, which is really the time frame around the SDGs, is actually much closer than people think. Uh, I came into this role uh, last year and my first observation is that the trajectory we are on, we will not make it. Uh, and what I see is a lot of inertia. What I see on a global basis is a lot of um, SDG washing going on. Uh, but there's been a lack of innovation and a lack of adventurous bravery, I think, in trying to shift that trajectory into one that um, mainstreams SDGs and actually makes it uh, more likely than not that we can actually get close to the uh, the goals of 2030. So I would say as, a, uh, as an institution, the ICC, and by the way, we're the only private sector organization with a permanent seat now at the UN, and that's partly because of the SDGs, because there was a recognition 18 months ago that maybe the UN needed to start talking to the private sector about delivering on the SDGs, that um, our, our goal now is to shift that trajectory. Our goal now is to come up with new, uh, new inflections in the way in which people think about the SDGs. Scaling it up is one of the most important things. I mentioned my 45 million businesses that, we, that we're the institutional representative of. Uh, and there are a lot of them are actually SMEs and micro SMEs in developing countries. So one thing that we're working on quite hard actually is how do we make the SDGs real uh, for SMEs and micro SMEs in developing countries? Because that, if we can actually translate that into action, then we can get a scale. We can get a scale. We can actually move the SDGs trajectory to a tipping point, which should fall in favour of achievement. But it's not easy. <laughs> Definitely isn't. And. Just to clarify what you mean by SMEs and micro SMEs. Sorry, SMEs are small, medium enterprises and micro, micro uh, small, medium enterprises. And that's really small businesses, which really account for in most economies the bulk of employment, the bulk of economic activity, if I could. And if you look at developing countries, that's where the power lies. And um, uh, in Asia Pacific, um, if you actually look at it as a, an economic unit, the largest proportion of the economic union, unit in the Asia Pacific is actually SME and micro SME activity. So before we talk more about the private sector and public sector and how they might interact in all of this, I'll just quickly put to you this question of um, what popped up in the Global Risks Report. So this year's Global Risks Report, published by the World Economic Forum in partnership with others, featured cybersecurity, environmental degradation, and mental health on the main list of concerns. But we also saw rising geopolitical and geoeconomic tensions, as you definitely mentioned, at the top of the list. And I'm sure we can all think of some very topical examples um, to support this. So John, with some of the world's largest powers uh, not being on the best of terms at the moment, how can we ensure that countries in general cooperate and collaborate with each other to find the global solutions to the global problems that we're facing at the moment? Well, I mean, there's a couple of facts that get in the way. First is that um, the SDGs were signed up to by all countries, as was um, the Paris as well, uh, Paris Agreement. So there is actually, uh, this is in terms of climate, so you actually do have a lot of global consensus already around these two areas. And if you think about it, that's because there's mutual interest involved. I mean, 
putting it boldly, I mean, um, the SDGs on one way, one way of looking at it is actually designed to save the market economy and the Paris Agreement is designed to save the, uh, the planet. Uh, from a business perspective, we would like a market economy system to continue to work and we'd like to have a planet which is functioning for us to continue to do business on. So it's in business's interests across jurisdictions, across geographic divides to enable this to happen. And what I find that um, ICC, for example, we can crowd in. We're, we're, in a funny way, we're probably one of the largest second track processes globally. So we just had a, um, a centennial uh, celebration in Paris and we have what's called our World Council. Uh, in that World Council, we can have ICC US sitting in the same room as ICC Iran. We can have ICC Israel sitting next to ICC Palestine. Uh, and why is that? Because we actually have commonality of interest in terms of having an effective functioning com global commercial uh, arrangements because it's in the interest of business to be able to work together. So there is actually a lot of commonality um, and there's uh, one of the challenges to create and convene platforms and opportunities for more of that commonality um, to shine through. Um, we're probably troubled by some of the contours that are emerging now as a consequence of the geopolitical tension, particularly around things like global governance of the digital economy and the real challenge there, you can see the contours already of a potential split in the um, digital economy uh, with a curated uh, digital platform in China plus, a curated digital platform in US plus. There may be tensions, therefore, in interoperability between the two. So one of the roles, by the way, of the ICC, because of our size – and because historically we've been able to create norms and standards for the global economy, particularly where governments can't act, uh, we also have our own court system, which might sound like a, another thing. So we can create um, norms and standards and we can govern them and we can hold people accountable. We are actually thinking about how we can play a role potentially in the interoperability. Because as I say, there are some contours emerging as a consequence of the geopolitical um, tension, which could have adverse impacts just in a practical way for business. Uh, obviously, we're seeing it playing out in um, the trade dispute, which is going on at the moment. The bigger concern for us, um, putting aside the tensions between the US and China, is what does it mean for the multilateral trading system, which has enabled business so well for so long to actually cooperate and trade with itself across the global economy. And uh, the absence of multilateral trading system with effective uh, accountability mechanisms uh, will actually cause a lot of risk to that. So that's not something that's in our interest. So we're at the moment focused very much on preservation of the system, but enriching the system. And we're enrich we want to enrich the system, particularly around this issue of ensuring that it's capable of dealing with the digital economy in the 21st century. So creating a fit for purpose. So we think there's a lot of commonality of interests. We think one of the real tensions um, which will emerge is between the big four traders. Uh, so that's um, US, EU, China, and Japan. Um, we think there's a way forward here. We think that the, each of them have their own particular interests, that they need to show leadership in there. They don't necessarily convene on the four all the time, but the four of them together need to show a leadership role. And if they don't, 
then middle middle powers like Australia and also the private sector needs to hold them accountable, keep putting the pressure on to ensure that they seek to preserve the multilateral trading system. And if the US withdraws, which is clearly possible, or if the system collapses, which is possible, um, we need to be in a position where we're actually coming up with solutions to create new frameworks for the 21st century, none of which is easy, uh, fully acknowledge that. But we look at guiding points like um, the G20 in Osaka. Uh, we would like to see a strong political uh, will put behind maintenance of and preservation of the uh, global trading system. We're cautiously pessimistic, I, I would say. Um, but we do think if one of our jobs in the private sector is to bring to the attention of the global leaders the net benefits, even from a national, individual natural, national interest point of view, in preserving that system and helping to find and craft new solutions, which we do. So we've created a, um, a digital platform. It's called Global Dialogues on Trade, where we crowd in the private sector on a global basis, including in um, developing countries, and we take those views directly to leaders to inform the discussion so it's not just left to negotiators in a room who have no accountability. I mean, the people we're crowding in here employ real people in real countries with real jobs looking to look after real families. And so there is a kind of um, uh, uh, political pressure we can bring to bear. So you've talked a lot about the collaboration and cooperation that needs to happen between countries. And I imagine having a common set of goals would help a lot in this. So... We're looking at the UN Global Compact now, which is an initiative that encourages companies to commit themselves to a set of sustainable principles and goals. You can call it an international crossroads of sorts between public and private actors. So how effective are initiatives like the Global Compact in their ability to contribute to sustainable development as well as creating this collective action movement that we need? Well, a couple of things. I'm actually on the board of the Global Compact. The Global Compact is an interesting innovation. I think one of the challenges for the Global Compact to conceive of its role so that it's as effective as possible, for me, the Global Compact should be a catalyst, should be a, um, a central point for best learnings, best practice on achieving the SDGs. At the moment, it's, it's trapped a little bit in measuring its success by the number of companies it signs up. And on one level, the trajectory is positive, but I'll give you the real numbers so you can judge for yourself. But the, I think the. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The actual total number of companies that are signed up to the Global Compact is something like 17 to 20,000. Now, look, that's not going to get us there. So if the end output, which the, is the Global Compact is measured by, is the number of companies that sign up to it is failed. If the end output, which the uh, Global Compact is judged by, is helping to shift the trajectory to enable the kind of scaling I talked about before, then that should be its purpose. And that should be working very closely with me at ICC to ensure that we create the best tools to enable us to actually scale up the SDG adherence, SDG incorporation for SMEs and micro SMEs globally. We're trying to encourage that. 
uh, but in the end of the day, we're just doing it ourselves anyway. But I think that's the way it needs to be measured. Uh, one of the difficulties is with groups like the Global Compact is they also get stuck in the United Nations. You know, I'm a, an adherent to the principle to the to the philosophy of the UN, but actually, it's an organisation. It's not very good in terms of organising. It's just not very good. It's sort of bedeviled by bureaucracy and inertia. And so the organization can become very internally focused, whereas I think to actually achieve the SDGs, you have to be extremely externally focused. So creating new tools, new toolboxes, finding ways to distribute them, actually realizing that some of the requirements that the UN has on reporting is just not going to fly. For example, um, if you're a three-person fishing shop out of Bangladesh uh, and you want to comply with the SDGs. And frankly, you know, I know these people because they're part of us. So we sort of think about this stuff. You know, a three-person fishing business out of uh, Bangladesh does not want to ruin the ocean, does not want to uh, uh, enslave people, does not want to actually um, treat its workers badly. It wants to do the right thing. Uh, it needs to be encouraged and shown how to do so. It needs to be incentivized as well by improved um, opportunity in terms of access to finance. What it doesn't want is additional reporting requirements because uh, that's one of the things that bedevils SMEs and micro SMEs, which actually makes it difficult for them to operate, is actually a multiplicity of reporting requirements on uh, on a um, on a di- on a given day. The other issue, of course, which is the prime one, is an absence of access to finance. So, if you were thinking about how you mainstream SDGs on a global basis, rather than threatening people, uh, and rather than saying, simply saying it's your moral obligation. You're better off to think about how do I incentivize people? And that's what I'm focused on at the moment. How do we incentivize SMEs and micro SMEs to adhere to and apply the SDGs? Now, let's not forget there are 17 of them. I challenge you to actually go through the 17 and show how ANU applies the 17. Um, though, by the way, just as an aside, one of the things I find fascinating about coming back to Australia is how little attention is paid to the SDGs in um, in uh, public discourse anyway. It's almost like they're a, a remote feature, whereas this is actually a very large feature of the global conversation in terms of how you shift the global economy. Uh, that being said, what you have to do is help these businesses find ways of actually applying them that are, are meaningful in their business life. They don't, so they don't have to do a whole lot of new things. They can simply adapt what they're doing and get some benefit from that. So with the whole thing, that whole question of financing comes the question of infrastructure investment um, as well as investment in other sort of schemes in developing nations. So according to the World Bank last year, private infrastructure participation in low and middle income countries came to a total of $90 billion across 41 countries. What kind of infrastructure investment should businesses be making to best help developing nations? Well, great question. I mean, um, there's a danger always thinking about infrastructure in terms of um, major big projects. Uh, There is actually just some stuff that needs to be done. Um, If I could, in terms of investment, um, one of the challenges you have with developing countries, I've just come out of, um, I was in in Lagos. Um, There's a significant issue there about uh, infrastructure investment in in the actual city itself to make it function. What you also know the need for um, uh, to encourage all that is to have a functioning private sector in the uh, in the economies. If you can actually create a functioning private sector, or create um, 
um, an environment where the private sector is able to flourish, then your capacity ultimately to start attracting large-scale infrastructure investment will improve because to enable the private sector to flourish, you've got to have rule of law, transparency, accountability, skilled, capable workforce, etc. These are things which are domestic political choices which you'd like, um, uh, like the government of Nigeria to take or the city of Lagos to take. Um, so one of the roles of the ICC is help to encourage them and show them roadmaps. Uh, one thing I do notice is that it's not just absence of financing for investment in infrastructure. It's actually challenges for SMEs and micro SMEs of getting access to finance to help their businesses. Uh, if you think about priorities, for me, uh, that's actually a very, really important part because they're the ones who are actually employed. They're the ones who create opportunities. How do you create the um, environment where it's easier to provide access to finance for small, medium enterprises and micro uh, enterprises so that they can actually function as businesses and more importantly, more can grow, more can actually emerge. And there's some challenges there that we're working on. The bigger issue about um, global, I mean, sort of major infrastructure investment, there's a lot of domestic political reform that's required to be done. Um, and I do know that um, from my experience, I used to chair finance and um, uh, economics in the APEC Business Advisory Council. There's, you know, if I got a penny for every conference that goes on around the world, speaking at every conference that goes around the world on infrastructure, I'd be a rich man. Um, the reality is that um, I think a lot of people, everyone knows what needs to be done, but a lot of it comes down to political will. And a lot of that is domestic choices that are made. Uh, and I look at that in particular in Africa, where you've got to create an environment which would require some quite significant cultural changes in the way in which the political economy is operate, which require um, a reassertion of the rule of law, which require a zero tolerance for corruption. Getting the settings right uh, to enable people to feel comfortable about investing their money. I sit on the board of a major investor, IFM Global Investors. Um, and one of the things when you think about it is that we're investing workers' dollars and cents as their future retirement. Uh, we don't want that risk. And you know, we're a major player. We've got something like $140 billion, which we invest. So at the moment, our investment is very much focused on OECD-mandated um, investments. Uh, for us to actually start looking more broadly at in developing countries, then the whole ecosystem needs to be brought up uh, into an investable ecosystem, which gives us confidence that we can get the funds in, out, cleanly, the infrastructure can be built, maintained over 20, 30 years. Um, and that also requires things like deepening of capital markets. And so there's a lot of stuff that needs to go on. None of it's beyond um, uh, contemplation or beyond the uh, the wish of leaders to actually achieve, but it does require a lot of political will uh, in a domestic economy. So with political will, I imagine you need just as much accountability measures put in place. Whose responsibility is that? Is that the sort of the global organizations that can help with keeping um, holding governments and countries accountable, or is that up to the domestic sort of environment to encourage? Well, it's a combination of the two. But I mean, the first is you, know, you can see it in obviously in African economies. You've seen it in Rwanda. You've actually seen um, uh, a shift in the culture, the economic culture, the, the way in which the economy operates to provide for much more accountability. So domestic political choices are extremely important. But the rules are also important. At the moment, we don't really have a global uh, investment framework. That needs, that's one of the aspects of the reform of the multilateral trading system in which these four big traders actually have a mutual interest. Getting some kind of investment framework up with clear rules would be very helpful for everyone. But also rules 
because uh, even on that level, when you see it with the Belt and Road Initiative, which ensure that the investments are done in a transparent and environmentally sound way and actually socially sophisticated, uh, respectful of labor rights, et cetera, as well. So we've got to be careful here that we balance not just the appetite for investment, um, the shifts required in, in domestic economies with the sustainability uh, kind of guidelines that I think we'd all like to see as well. So to wrap things up, John, is there one piece of advice that you'd give to Asian Pacific countries um, to help them do their parts in future-proofing the global economy? Continue the process of domestic reform. I mean, it's one of the hardest things, and I would say the same thing to Australia as well. I mean, uh, don't rely upon the global world to fix your problems. You actually do have to continue focusing on continual structural reform in your own economies. That requires creating a positive narrative for the future for citizens, which has clearly been absent in a number of economies about where they can fit into this new economy, uh, the new 21st century economy that we're all confronting, uh, and and, uh, providing domestic choices around training and development, these sorts of issues as well. So the process of structural reform is never complete. If you're an Asia-Pacific economy, you should be focused on that and working with your neighbours through the APEC process in particular to actually deliver that and show why there's a net benefit to citizens in continuing this pathway. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. We've learned so much There seems to be a whole long list of things that um, countries need to work on at this point, but hopefully we're heading um, towards some sort of progress. And yeah, thank you so much. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Got a story you want to tell? Or an audience you want to reach through the magic of audio? Then we've got the short course you've been waiting for. I'm Martin Pierce, And I'm Sarah Bice. And we're running a very special podcasting for professionals short course here at the Agnews Crawford School. We'll teach you everything you need to get your idea into audio and out to an audience. We'll answer all the questions you might have, like... What should I call my podcast? What formats work? What equipment do I need? How do I do interviews? How do I write a script? How the hell do I use this audio editing software? How do I reach my adoring Spotify audience? And how do I know if I've been successful? So many questions, Martin. And so many answers, Sarah. Plus, you'll get hands-on experience right here in the Crawford Podcast booth. And you'll get to meet some of the Crawford Podcast game. That's Podcasting for Professionals short course. Find out more at bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting. That's bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting. Thank you so much, John and Lydia, for this great discussion. What did you think of it, Quentin? Spot on as far as I'm concerned. Uh, John is able to bring a lot of his experience in terms of the podcast. He tells us tells us what not only what his organization is doing, but what's going on in the world. You know, we've got a, a trade war underway right now. I mean, there's no other way of describing it. it's a trade war. And that has all sorts of implications, not only for international trade, but investments and then of course for economic growth, and therefore reaching a whole range of objectives, including, as we pointed out at the beginning, of course, before the broadcast, uh, the issues of sustainable development. How do you achieve them? What do you need to do? What are the sorts of actions that are required by governments, communities, and of course, uh, the private sector as well to deliver on those uh, very important goals? 
One thing that he criticized in the interview was that um, the SDGs seem to be quite absent in public discourse in Australia. Is that also your impression, Quentin, also particularly looking at Goal 6, which aims at water sustainability? Well, certainly, I mean, typically people in rich countries like Australia tend to think of SDGs are really about other countries, you know, the poor uh, emerging uh, countries. Uh, but in Australia, of course, water for all does matter. There are people... Australians living in communities with a, a quality of water that is just totally unacceptable. There are not many of them because these communities are small and they're in remote areas, but that's unacceptable. You know, So that's something where we should be delivering on right now. We don't need to wait till 2030. And so I think water quality issues, we've got water quantity issues of fish kills, et cetera. So we've got a long way to go in Australia to deal with the problems that we're and challenges we're facing in water. They're not easy. We're, we're in a dry, dry continent. Uh, but nevertheless, we can't resolve those issues if we keep on claiming we're world's best practice, yet we don't have the data to back that up, that claim, and yet we don't deal with the problems that are right in front of us. So so yes, it's, a, it's a, I think, a, a real lesson for us in Australia. If we can't fix it in Australia with all the money, all the resources, uh, <laughs> then... Um, Who will be able to? Who's yeah. going to be able to do it in, in much poorer countries? So, so yeah, it doesn't bode well, I think, for the SDG deliverables in the context of those goals by 2030. But I'm always optimistic. I'm hopeful. I think we can turn it around here in Australia. I think we can turn it around elsewhere. But but business as usual, bearing a head in the sand, pretending all is well, saying we're, we're with world's best and all this uh, stuff is not going to take it to, to us in the right direction. We have to always look at what's wrong, what's the challenge, how do we respond to it, what are the options available, and how do we, uh, how do we t- take those action plans to actually make a difference. Yeah. Moving on from business and usual and leading by example in the future, hopefully. So listeners, you heard what we thought of the discussion, but we really want to know what you thought of it. So please keep sending us your comments and questions. The best way to do that is to jump onto our Facebook podcast group, that's Policy Forum Pod, or reach us on Twitter where we are at Apps Policy Forum. Also, Quentin, we've just heard from Martin and Sarah about the Podcasting for Policymakers course that they'll be teaching on 17 and 26 September. You're a pretty seasoned podcaster by now, but is there anything that you would still be interested in learning about podcasting in the policy space? Oh, absolutely. There's lots of stuff to learn. I mean, I don't know the technical details, you know, about the editing, uh, the the background. I just come and I, I do the podcast or I do the intros and outros, but it's a much, there's much much more involved than that and the preparation work. So yes, uh, I would certainly benefit from it. That's for sure. As Quentin said, there's a lot involved behind making these podcasts and producing them. And there's always more to learn about how to do better. We certainly do learn something every single time we produce one of these podcasts. So do check out crawford.anu.edu.au where you can find this short course with Martin and Sarah. And I can promise you it will definitely be an enlightening but also very fun session if you want to join. And one thing you surely want to bring along for the course would be your Got 99 Problems Spot a Brew Ain't One Mug. If you haven't gotten your hands on one of these highly sought after mugs, there are now two ways to do so. You can A, suggest to us via the Facebook group a topic for the pod that we then later make into a new episode of Policy Forum Pod, or B, have your comments and questions read out on the podcast that can be either Democracy Sausage 
or Policy Forum Pod. But you do have to please remind us when this happens because we're a tiny bit forgetful sometimes. The best way to do that is to just comment under the post of the respective podcast and you could write question one or comment two. And once you get to five, we will send you one of these mugs. Now, Quentin, over the last few weeks on the pod group, we've also been putting together a list of podcasts that everyone's listening to. What pods would you like to add to that list and what's on the Grafton podcast list? Well, Global Waterform is something that uh, I'm being connected with and help established about uh, eight or nine years ago. But they, we've just set up a series of podcasts. Of course, it focuses on water. If you care about water issues, it's definitely a, a place to, to go and have a look. So I would uh, that would be my number one is recommend the Global Waterform. We've just uh, got a few, uh, few out there already and there'll be more to come. Fantastic. We'll make sure to add Global Water Forum to our list. And as our frequent listeners will know, each week at the end of the podcast, we answer some of your questions and respond to what you've sent to us. So let's have a quick look at what we've got here. For for the first one, we've got a podcast, Fixing the National Disability Insurance Scheme with Gemma Carey, Claire Moore and Jenny Macklin. That was last week's podcast, actually. In this episode, we take a look at the future of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And we also heard about a new project by Carolyn Hendricks, Stomping Grounds, that could transform unloved and unused spaces in our cities and bring communities together in the process. We've had a comment here by Shireen Lamond on our Facebook podcast group. Thank you very much for that comment, Shireen. She says, interesting discussion, very positive scheme. The key point for me was that many of the implementation problems could be solved, lessened with more staff, much better option than using the unspent money to prop up the budget. Love, Jenny Macklin. What are your thoughts on that, Quentin? I think there's a lot of issues associated with NDIS that uh, I don't really know about the details, but I certainly know people who are beneficiaries in the sense that they are part of the scheme. And it's still, uh, the best I could say is teething problems. There's a whole set of issues of trying to get yourself established on the scheme and then the payments associated with that. It's, 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 it's a challenge. So I don't know how we go forward on that. Um, I don't have the answers. It's, it's surely there are quite a few issues with the scheme, but as you said, you think it's more teething issues than long-term problems. Well, certainly the people who get on the NDIS are pleased to be on it. Yeah. I, I think the issue is, is those people who are not on it and who f- have a need and, yeah. and whether they fall. And then the, the second issue is the providers themselves. You know, Can you get the providers? You might get the money or the funding, but can you get the providers that you would want with that funding? And that's a problem as well. And, and keep in mind, the, uh, quite a number of the people on NDIS are, are challenged in all sorts of ways, physical challenges, for example, and, and sorts of things that are easier for us to do, uh, to, to, to respond to, to those sorts of problems. It's much harder for them. And so it, it, it becomes uh, more problematic when you're in the situation that they're in. Absolutely. So accessibility of the scheme itself is a huge problem. Well, it is. If yes. you're not on the scheme and you need to be, clearly that's a problem for those people. And there's, there's certainly uh, certainly a lot of people like that. So um, uh, let's let's call it a teething problem that they'll get on the scheme and the people on the scheme can 
can get the services that they need. But of course, there are people on the scheme who are getting the services they need and happy to be on it. So it's a question of making sure it's comprehensive enough to capture all the people who have fallen through the through the gap, so to speak. Another example of learning by doing, really. Absolutely. You can't plan for these in advance. You just have to make sure you've got a right budget and you've got to have, have goodwill. And, and it gets back to the basics. You've got to get the evidence, you know, what's happening on the ground and then use that evidence to try and make the scheme better. So a big thank you to everyone who has commented and a reminder to please keep sending us your great questions and comments. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum. That's on Twitter. You can reach us on Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. And please do join that group if you haven't done so yet. Or you can drop us a line at podcast at policyforum.net. Hello as well to our newest member of the Facebook pod group, Ella Delarue and Keith Reed. Great to have you in the pod squad. And thanks both of you for sending your suggestions for future podcasts to us already. Ella, you suggested that you'd like to hear a pod on the upcoming Nauru election. And Keith, you said that you'd like to hear a pod on whether Australia is becoming more conservative in terms of embracing so-called progressive policies. For example, would Medicare as a new policy be accepted in today's political climate? What are your thoughts about that, Quentin? Well, hard to say, isn't it? <laughs> but, but uh, you know, we had an election on May 18th and that was the return of the coalition government. I think certainly the perspective from sitting on the sidelines here is that uh, the focus is very much, I think, on making sure that uh, expenditures do not grow. And in fact, uh, the, that's the part of their, their, their policies. So, so big new policies <laughs> which uh, have big expensive price tags attached to them uh, are just not going to go through in the next three years as far as I can tell. Um, certainly if that's what the that's what the government has made clear to us, I think. And certainly with the tax cuts, as the tax cuts come in, uh, they already have. Uh, and as they progressively come in stage two and stage three, there'll certainly be less revenues coming in and that will also have implications for expenditures. So to avoid deficits, they will, without increasing taxes, then the, then there will be a, a, certainly a, a an incentive or an impetus or drive to reduce expenditures and the big expenditures are of course on the <laughs> on the sorts of things that we 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 would talk about you know uh, whether it be uh, NDIS or whether it be Medicare whether education or healthcare all that sort of stuff so so those are the sorts of things that I, I think are coming but um, uh, we'll just wait and see do you think that it's the same amongst Australians as a population is there less of an appetite for bigger progressive, in inverted commas, policies? I'm not so sure about that. I mean, there are surveys every year that the ANU actually conducts and uh, certainly people when in, in those responses to those those questions, they, they, they certainly do favour um, the support for the sort of services that we currently have. Mm. Whether we're talking about something new, um, that's always a question mark. But certainly we've we've certainly had big big policies, NDIS being one, of course, in the last decade, and uh, that there's been widespread widespread support for that. So I I, I don't know. I but I think it, it's true for any policy, whether it's uh, whether it's a big or a small policy. If it's a new expenditure, then you know, there has to be a justification behind it, and it has to be explained why we're doing it. What's the need? And uh, there's certainly a substantial amount of need out there in Australia. So, so there may be. Uh, I would suggest there would need to be changes in a whole range of programs. 
homelessness, for example, and that's a state level responsibility, the whole set of issues around that, that I think we need to, to investigate. And uh, those issues of homelessness, uh, are certainly, uh, uh, certainly for the people who aren't, uh, aren't getting shelter, uh, need to, need to be corrected. And, and so how do we, how we go about that? That's, that's out of my area of expertise, but there's a range of things that, that need correcting, that need, uh, need, <clears throat> need expenditures and need uh, careful thought, evidence-based policy. So thank you, Ella, and thank you also, Keith, for your suggestions here. And thank you, Quentin, for joining me this week. You're more than welcome. Thank you for inviting me along. It's always great to have you on the podcast, Quentin. And if you liked today's episode, which of course we hope you did, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And thanks to everyone who has left us a review. We really enjoy reading them. This episode has been produced by me, Julia Ahrens, with executive production by Martin Pears, extra writing by Lydia Kim, and editing by Branko Tsvetijevic. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week, where we are going to be hearing from the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, Philip Alston. Should really be an interesting pod, and one you won't want to miss. But until then, from me, Julia, cheerio. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.